Bible reading starts uh, Exodus 33, verse 7, and goes through to chapter 34, verse 8, and then we'll start again at chapter 4, 28, through to the end of the chapter, and we start in on page uh, 92. Now Moses used to make a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, They all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favour with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very things you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you might stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me at the top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiselled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord stood down in the cloud and 
came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. And now we move on to verse 28 in the same chapter. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he'd spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a, a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back on his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we would echo Moses' prayer as we ask you to please teach us your ways so that we may know you and continue to find favour with you. We ask, Father, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that we might see something more of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the famous story goes of the little girl sitting at the table with a sheet of paper surrounded by all of her crayons. And her mum says, oh, what are you drawing? God, the little girl says. But nobody knows what God looks like. They will in a minute, the girl says. Well, tonight that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the face of God. The face of God. Now, what would that look like? Better than anything you could draw with crayons. Well, Moses wants to know. Because to see the face of God, well, that's about knowing him, about really knowing him deeply, knowing him in a way that means we're changed as a result. That is what Moses wants. And that's what, something of what we see here, something of the tension of that. How can you see God's face? Exodus 33 and 34 are about knowing God, being with God, seeing God, and being changed by him as we do that. Now, as New Testament Christians, things are a bit different for us. So there are things about this where you say, that is not how we approach God. You will notice we are not heading up a mountain this evening. That's not how we approach God. And yet the God revealed here in these pages is the same God. And so there is so much for us to learn here as well about how people like us can see 
and know the otherwise unseen, unknowable God. And the first thing I want to draw out from this passage is that the Lord will be with his people. The Lord will be with his people. That's chapter 33, verses 7 to 17. The Lord will be with his people. You can't see someone and know somebody if you aren't with them. But there's a real problem in this passage. Our section starts with a major problem, that God is such a holy God and his people are so sinful. Last week, we heard about the Israelites abandoning God and worshipping a golden calf instead. And at the end of all of that, the Lord said this, if you have a look at chapter 33, verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. You see, God is gracious. He's saying, okay, you can still have the promised land, but you can have it without me. I'm not coming with you. And he says it again in verse 5. You are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. They're stiff-necked, as in like a, like a stubborn donkey who just refuses to turn the right way and stay in the right way. God is just too holy, too pure, too perfect to be around people like that. We saw this a few weeks ago, didn't we? It's almost as if God is nuclear, we were saying. That he's not safe for sinners to be around. Now Moses hadn't joined in with all that golden calf nonsense, and so he was still okay with God. He could set up this special tent of meeting where Moses and he could meet and they could talk. And there'd be a cloud or smoke standing by the tent as a sign. God was in there. Moses in there. God was in there. A bit like the flag goes up outside Buckingham Palace to say the king is here now. So this would be outside the tent to say the Lord is here. Moses could be there. But everybody else, well, they can just stand and watch. See verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. But if you see what happens before then, verse 10, when the people see it, they stood and worshipped each at the entrance to their tent. So they sort of gaze and look on and say, wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be great to be able to come near to God like that? Moses can do that. I can't do that. The Lord is not with his people. He's only with Moses. And so Moses brings this up in verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. Meaning, we still haven't resolved this issue about who is coming and who isn't coming. Are you coming with us, Lord? Are you going to somehow send somebody else with us? How is this going to work? Are you coming with us? Verse 14, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And that sounds like the answer Moses is looking for, doesn't it? But it's not. Because the word you is singular, it's not plural. So God is saying, I will go with you, Moses. I will give you rest, not that lot. And that's a real problem, isn't it? But it's also potentially a bit of a tempting offer. The people have been told, you can have these blessings, but not actually have a relationship with God. Moses is told, no, you can have a relationship with God, but nobody else can. 
Would we be happy with either of those options? If you got to go to heaven, you got to enjoy every good thing, but the one downside, Jesus wouldn't be there. Would you want to go? I think that is what most people do want. They want a nice life without God. Or how about the offer that Moses gets? If you're allowed to have God with you, but you're the only one, no church, no other Christians, would you want that? Now that is what <laughs> that is what a lot of believers seem to want. A personal relationship with God, but not much interest in church family, not much interest in other people coming to know Jesus as well. Just me and God. Well, for Moses, the suggestion is awful. And so he pleads in verse 15 and 16. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? He's saying God being with his people. Well, that's what marks us out as his people. We're nothing without him. And so Moses says, look, if you're not coming with us, Lord, we would be better off staying out here in the middle of the desert. What a challenge that is for us. Could we say that? I don't want to go anywhere without you, Lord. I don't even want heaven without you. And I couldn't bear it if it was only me who got to know you. I'm desperate for my brothers and sisters to be with you too. I'm desperate for more people to come to know you, Lord. And it's in that last bit that Moses is a lot like Jesus, isn't he? Jesus, who enjoys a perfect relationship with God the Father and the Spirit, but pleads on behalf of sinners, says to his Father, don't forget them. I don't want to just enjoy this without them. That is why Jesus died for us, so that we could be included in this as well. In the words of verse 13, when he says, remember that this nation is your people, not just me, remember them as well. well. Just like that, Jesus pleads on our behalf, represents us before God to ask for his ongoing presence with us. And the answer to that plea comes back, yes, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. So because the Lord is pleased with Moses, he promises to be with all of his people. The Lord will be with his people. And what a comfort that is to know. And for us, how much more sure we can be of that. That because the Lord is pleased with Jesus... He promises to be with us, that sinful people like us can be friends with a holy God, can know him, can be part of that people together, not just having our own one-on-one -on -one time with God, as precious as that is, but saved as a people who care for one another's ongoing relationship with the Lord, who long for more and more people to be part of it. We should praise God that he will be with his people. 
But Moses wants to be sure. He so loves the Lord. He so enjoys his presence with him that he wants to actually see him. And that's our second point. The Lord reveals his glory. It's quite an ask, isn't it, in verse 18? Then Moses said, now show me your glory. It's almost a demand, isn't it? (laughs) He really needs to see it. What he wants to be shown is God's glory. That is, he wants to see God as he fully is. The word for glory is related to the do with, it's to do with weight and substance and heaviness and worth. God's glory is everything about who he is, but it's everything about who he is shining out, shining out like the sun. The sun is what it is, and so it shines out, it blazes in brilliance. That is what God's glory is like, his heaviness, his worth shining out. And Moses says, show me that. I want to see that. And so the Lord says, okay, I will reveal my glory, but there are limits. There are limits to what you can cope with. A bit like staring at the sun. The Lord is too glorious. He's too glorious to look at directly. So he says this in verse 19 and 20. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. So it is a yes in that the Lord will reveal himself, he will reveal his glory, but... The face of God cannot be seen. It is just so glorious it would kill you. And he says the same thing in verse 22 and 23. He says, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Now, the observant among you might have spotted back in verse 11, we were told that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. So what's going on? Can he see it? Can he not see it? What's happening there? Well, we know that God is spirit in the sense that he he doesn't have a face, doesn't have a back, doesn't have a hand, not until the incarnation anyway. This is speaking in metaphors to help us understand. So when we're told the Lord and Moses spoke face to face in the tent of meeting, that's talking about intimacy. They're chatting like friends. It's remarkable like that. But here, when it's about this bigger display of God's glory, when it comes to that, well, to look at his face would be to see him in his essence, to see him in the fullness of his majesty. And that is more than anybody could handle. And so Moses is permitted to see his back. Again, it's picture language to describe getting getting a little glimpse, getting a portion of his glory that Moses can cope with. So the Lord will reveal his glory, but he'll do it in a way that is gracious, in the sense that it won't blow Moses into smithereens. There are limits. Moses is going to be hidden away in a bunker, if you like, in, in the cleft of a rock. The other day, uh, during half-term, we went to 
Hawkston Park Follies. And there was a, a bit there, I don't know if you've ever been, called The Cleft. I did think of this while we were there. It's sort of a crack in the rock, like a, like a cave, and it's big enough that you can get inside it. And then Moses is going to be hidden in this cleft in the rock. And the entrance is going to be covered over so Moses can't see out. So the whole time he's seeing the glory of God, it's going to be pitch black. And after the Lord has gone, the cover will be taken off and Moses will get a little peek at his back. It's a bit like saying, you know, you won't see the plane flying past, but you get to see the sort of vapour trails in the sky afterwards. Moses will get to see where God has been And that in itself is going to be mind-blowingly glorious. In chapter 34, it then happens. Moses goes up Mount Sinai again. And verse 5, we're told this. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's fascinating, isn't it? When the Lord reveals his glory to Moses, what does Moses see? Nothing. It's what he hears. It's about what he hears, that God proclaims his name. That is what it is to see, as it were, the glory of God. It is to hear from him, to know him. He proclaims his name, and and not just literally his name, the Lord, Yahweh, but his character, what his name represents. So in a sense, the mum at the start in the silly joke at the beginning, she was right. Nobody knows what God looks like, but that's okay. Because we know what he is like. Moses wants to see what God looks like and instead he is told what God is like. So when God reveals his glory, it's his character. It's his nature. It's not just some sort of, wow, that was really pretty to look at. Although I would imagine that to see God would be, as we were singing that psalm, to see him, everything else suddenly looks ugly in comparison. He is so glorious. But when he reveals himself in his glory, it's his character that he wants us to to know. And in particular, his grace and his justice. Firstly, his grace. He says that he is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Now, this is the most quoted bit of the Bible in the rest of the Old Testament. And we sing it lots in our songs, as as John said, rich in love and you're slow to anger. We were singing as well just before. It's one of the favourite verses of lots of people. And no wonder, because it is glorious, isn't it, that that is what God is like. When he says, I want to show you what I'm like, what on earth is he going to say? Well, what he says is, I'm gracious. I don't fly off the handle. I'm slow to anger. I'm rich in love. I'm merciful. I'm forgiving. That is the only reason this holy God can be with sinful people. It's because that's what he's like. He's gracious. And because his graciousness is not just a sort of 
generous feeling he has from time to time. If you catch him on a good day, you'll be okay. No, he is gracious. There is no arm twisting required to make him gracious. That is who the Lord is. He is merciful. He is compassionate. And yet he's not a pushover either, is he? He reiterates his justice as well here when he says he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Meaning he's merciful and forgiving to everyone who repents. Everyone who turns back to him in faith, he forgives. But those who don't, he will not let off the hook. In fact, even for those who do repent, their sin is still punished in the Lord Jesus. In fact, sin has repercussions for generations. I think that's what verse 7 means. It says he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That can't mean innocent people are punished because of something their mum and dad did. Elsewhere in the Bible, when people do that, God says, don't do that. That is not fair. In, in, in Ezekiel 18 verse 20, the Lord says how it works. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteous, righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. So it's saying it can't mean that. Instead, I think it's saying that sin has a lasting influence. It impacts the next generation. Often people suffer the consequences. Don't we see that? As one generation messes things up and the next generation has to deal with it. I think it means as well that the children often continue in the sins of their parents. So when it says there that, that uh, it punishes the children for the sin of the parents, it could well be when those children do the same sin as their parents, which is so often what happens as people do what they've learned to do. But it also shows this passage, doesn't it, how God's grace has an even deeper impact than the worst sin. Because while the sins are revisited for three or four generations, see the start of verse 7. He maintains love to thousands. We're being told here that his grace is stronger than our sin. Now you might feel like a desperate, desperate sinner. The Lord's grace is stronger than our sin. When we repent, he forgives us. It would be against his nature not to. Because he is the kind of God, the only God, who forgives sinners who repent. And Jesus is the absolute proof of that, that that is what God is like. We're singing Rock of Ages later in our service. And that likens Jesus to the cleft in our story in the sense that he is a place. He is the way we can go to be safe in the presence of God because of his death on the cross. We can let me hide myself in thee. Let me hide myself in you and therefore I can be safe. And I think that is one way in which we see Jesus in this story. But even more than that, let's not forget that Jesus is the God of Exodus 34. He is this glorious God. 
John 1 verse 18 says this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, he has made him known. Jesus is how we know God. And just like Moses didn't see anything, but he heard things, we too don't need to physically see Jesus. We hear about him in the gospel. And through faith in the gospel, we truly know God. We'll come back to that thought later. The Lord revealed his glory to Moses. He revealed his character as just and gracious. And so, despite people's sin, the Lord renews the covenant. The Lord renews the covenant. That's what this has been about. It hasn't just been about Moses having a nice special encounter. This is sort of the the quiet time to end all quiet times. This is wonderful one-on-one time with God. Now, this has been about renewing that committed, loving relationship between God and his people. And it all flows out of God's gracious character. Having heard what God is like, Moses does the only sensible thing, doesn't he? Chapter 34, verse 8 and 9. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I found favour in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses worships the Lord. He asks for forgiveness. He asks for God to treat his people in line with his merciful character. In a sense, you are a God who forgives. You've just told me that. So please forgive. We are sinful people. You told me that. I'm saying back to you what you've already said. You know that. And so I ask this not because we deserve it. We're stubborn. We're sinful. But because of what you are like, Lord, please accept us as your people. For better or worse, please take us to be yours. Take us as we are. And we see how God responds in verse 10. Then the Lord said... I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Isn't that wonderful? That the Lord renews that covenant. It's almost like a sort of renewal of wedding vows, if you like. As he goes back over what's already happened and says, I... I still do, if you like. I still want to be your God and have you as my people. The people had rejected God, hadn't they? They'd worshipped the golden calf. They'd broken the covenant. And so symbolically, Moses smashed the stone tablets that had the commandments on. But now the Lord calls Moses up the mountain again for another 40 days and nights with two new stone tablets. That's a great picture, isn't it? of this smashed plate, if you like. And the Lord says, we'll start again with a fresh slate, a new start, a renewed covenant. And in light of all the golden calf debacle, he he goes over some of the basics again. He doesn't lower his standards, does he? He doesn't say, okay, right, this time, volume two, maybe just 
try to be a bit less. No, he, go, he says the same things. All the commands in this bit, in, uh, from this, the, the chunk in the middle of chapter 34, are things that he's already said. He's going over the do's and don'ts of worship, if you like. Don't be like all the nations around. So verse 11, it talks about how when you get to the promised land, which I'm going with you, by the way, now, when you get to that land, you're going to turf out all the pagans who are there. So verse 12, don't make a treaty with them. Don't join in with them. Don't be idolaters like them. It's very pointed in verse 14, isn't it? Do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. We tend to think of jealousy as bad, don't we? But if you were married and your spouse went off with somebody else and you weren't jealous, there would be something very wrong, wouldn't there? Love is jealous. And so the Lord is jealous for us. This covenant relationship, it is like a marriage in that sense. And God is saying, your worship, your devotion, that belongs exclusively to me. So no more golden calves. Stop it. And instead of saying worshipping God like that, instead he lays out a load of festivals, verse 18 to 26. These festivals that remind them of God's rescue and his provision. Don't do it like that. Do it like this, with the Passover and the Sabbaths and the various festivals. Isn't it gracious of God to set all this up again? We should take real comfort from this, that God forgives sinners. God renews relationship with people. But we have something so much better, don't we? We don't just have a renewed old covenant. We have an entirely new covenant. We have this marriage relationship, a marriage covenant between Christ and his church that Jesus died for. He died to make us his people. It is a covenant which we come back to time and time again, knowing God's grace towards us in Jesus. And we'll see in this final bit of the passage tonight why it is just so much better than that. So the final bit, verses 29 to 35. The Lord transforms his people. The Lord transforms his people. See, Moses comes back after meeting with God, and he is not the same. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. There's been so much about faces in this section, about the face of God. Even when it's talking about God's presence, that is literally talking about his face. So my face will go with you. He's talking about face, face, face all the time. And now, after all this contact with God, something has happened to Moses' face. It is shining. And that isn't just saying it's radiant, as in, oh, have you been on holiday? Have you got a, you got a lovely glow about it? you? No, know, it's saying it, it's shining. Like the moon reflects the sun. Moses is radiating something of God for having been with him. Kind of the afterglow of the glory of God. And the people 
are really freaked out by it. I mean, if you saw someone whose face was shining like that, it is quite a strange thing. But in verse 30, we're told they're afraid to come near him. Just as God has been so terrifyingly holy, as you see the flashings of fire and lightning and smoke and everything up on the mountain, we can't have anything to do with him. Moses comes down, they see what's happened to him, they go, I can't have anything to do with you either. He's been so transformed. And so in verse 33, we're told that he put a veil over his face. He has to cover his face or else people can't cope with it. It's a bit like how the cleft in the rock allowed Moses to be able to handle something of the glory of God. Well, now we've got the veil between Moses and the people allowing them to handle God's glory shining through him. They're able to see that and, and deal with it. But at the same time, it does somewhat mean their relationship with God is it's always one removed, isn't it? They, they, they always need to go through Moses and they always get sort of the, the afterglow of the afterglow, the bits that have snuck through the, the veil. That's... Is that what it's like for us? We don't really get to see the glory of God. Other people get to see the glory of God. Someone else gets to see that and we get the dribs and drabs, maybe. Well, thankfully not. Why don't you turn ahead in your Bible to 2 Corinthians 3. And and we're going to finish there, so you don't need to keep your finger in Exodus. 2 Corinthians 3. That's page 1160 if you've got a church Bible. 2 Corinthians 3. And, And verse 7, it talks about how the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory. It's just Moses was too glorious for having looked at God, having seen, having spoken to God. But it's saying, actually, if the ministry that brought death, that was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory like that, so they couldn't look at him, how much more glorious is the ministry that we have? How much better is it for us? And see how that's put in verse 13 and onwards. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what is passing away, that their minds were dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Verse 18. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do you see what that's saying? That until you put your faith in Jesus, this is what it's like. There is a veil in the way. There is a veil stopping us from seeing God's glory. There is a veil covering over our hearts. We cannot see it. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord Jesus Christ, that veil is taken away and we see him with an unveiled face. We behold his glory. And because we're beholding his glory, it says that we're reflecting his glory. Not just with a glowing, shining face, but with a completely transformed life as we become like him in our character as well. The old covenant good as it was, brought death. It was just rules written on stone. 
that we couldn't keep, things that we couldn't bear to look at. But in the gospel of the new covenant, we see the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Christ. We go from you cannot see God and live to beholding God's glory in Christ. And it's as we do that, as we behold God's glory in Christ, that the Lord transforms us. Just like how you could look at Moses and see there is someone who has met God. It can be the same with us. Our lives can radiate God's glory in the way we live, in the things we say, in the way we are. Someone might not be able to literally look at us for a moment and go, oh my goodness, well, maybe they do. Perhaps some people look at me and go, oh my goodness. But there's a very different reason for that. With this, this is saying someone could look at us up close in our life, live with us side by side, day by day, and say, there is a person who has met with God. And that happens as we look at Christ, as we hear about him in the gospel, as we put our faith in him. We might envy Moses with his mountaintop experience. We really, really shouldn't. We are in a much better position than him. No veils, no clefts, no fading glory, because we know Jesus. We know the one who is God with his people, who is the revelation of God's glory. We know the one who kept that old covenant, took all of its punishments, and set up a new one. We know the one who completely transforms us. And so we're told to contemplate Christ, to marvel at Jesus. What we look at changes what we look like. And so we're told to Gaze on Jesus, look at him, my faith, and be transformed by him. That is what I'm hoping is happening now, as we've spent this time together thinking about Jesus, not just thinking about Moses and mountains and things like that, as we've spent this time thinking about Jesus, that we would look at him, marvel at him, and so be changed by him. Let's make that our aim. Whenever we come to church, whenever we read the Bible on our own, whenever we're having conversations about him, whatever we're doing in our life, to be saying, that's what I want to do. I want to look at Jesus. I want to marvel at him and be transformed by him. Because it is in Jesus that we see the face of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this account of your meeting with Moses, for what it teaches us about your presence and about your character. We thank you that you are the same God who is still merciful and gracious and compassionate and just. We thank you for how this encounter points us to the Lord Jesus. Please would you help us to see how much more privileged we are, even the Moses. We pray that right now we would be putting our faith in him. We pray that this week we would marvel at Jesus. We would enjoy being in your presence everywhere we go. And so be transformed day by day. 
And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.